good morning, Cornerstone. It is a pleasure to stand up and teach the Word of God uh, to you all this morning. And it's uh, been a privilege to have so many guest teachers and uh, for the other elders to teach to. And I'm so glad that it is my turn. Full disclosure, this sermon is actually a text that I've taught on before here at Cornerstone. Uh, it was the first text that I taught um, under the tutelage of uh, Matt Turnbull. And uh, I thought it'd be good for a time for us to go through it again. There seems to be a stigma against pastors teaching through a text uh, multiple times, but I've never understood this. Scripture is so deep and multifaceted that I think it'd be great to hear multiple sermons on the same text and uh, maybe even from multiple teachers uh, to get the different perspectives on the text. Well, if you could turn to Colossians 3 in your Bibles, I will pray and then we will uh, get going. Lord, It is such a privilege to teach your word this morning, and I pray that you would bless my words, that they may be an encouragement to those here today. Thank you for the blessing that it is to have time to spend in your scriptures, and I pray that I would, by your Holy Spirit, be able to make the truths that are within this passage become evident to all of us this morning. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for the incredible redeeming work you do in our lives. We praise you for the calling to put off unrighteousness, but we also praise you that you did not stop there. You go on, Lord, to give us a beautiful new self, which we are called to put on as resplendent garments in place of the filthy rags that are our sins, clothing us in the richest garments that we could ever imagine. Now, please, Give us a deeper understanding of how to put on and wear this new self. Amen. The passage we'll be in today is Colossians 3, 12 through 17. And these verses pick up directly after the background scripture that Jordan read for us this morning. After having put off the old self and all its corruption, we are called to put on the new self. And today we'll be looking at that clothing and see how and why we can follow Paul's instructions to put on the new self and what doing so means for us as individuals and also as a body. So to begin with, I'll read the text for today and then we'll get started. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of our Lord. We'll be asking three questions of this passage this morning. First, what is this put on action and how do we put on the new self? Second, what does the new self look like? Because and because Paul tells us to grow in love, how can we do so and encourage others in it as well? So first, verse 12, and we'll start with put on then. 
we saw from uh, the background scripture what we are to put off, which is all types of sin. But putting off alone doesn't work because a vacuum is generated when you do. And if you don't fill it with something, then it will be filled, likely with the same thing that you put off to begin with. An example of this is as when a dictator is overthrown and only to be replaced by another dictator. Or how about a personal example? I am a fidgeter. If my hands don't have something to do, then they'll fidget. And it's not enough to simply cease from whatever fidgety action I'm doing. I have to give my hands something to do, such as going through a pattern on my fingers or taking notes, in order for them to stop. If we hope for our work of putting off, of having any meaningful value, we must put something else on instead. But what are we to put on? In place of the filthy rags that are our sin, what has God given us to equip us to excel in this life that he has before us? Before I answer this vital question, we should answer two other questions. First, why should I put on this new self-clothing? And second, how can I put it on? And that's what we see next in this passage. As God's chosen ones. To begin with, why can we put on the new self? And it's because of our identity before God. Chosen. It isn't often that we are chosen in life, but when we are, it usually makes a lasting impression on us. Think about a wife choosing a husband or being chosen for a scholarship to go to a school that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to attend. Or maybe a commander choosing you to lead the troops. These all have a lasting impression on our lives, but God's choosing and calling us to put on the new self is different. Why? Because his choosing is based not on our merit or our ability, unlike the other examples that I mentioned. His choosing us is more like a father choosing to adopt a child. The child does not deserve to be chosen, but the father decides to adopt him anyway. And my being chosen is even more striking than this because far from deserving to be chosen, I was in active rebellion against God when he chose me. And yet he still chose us to put on the new self and live in relationship when, with him. Now, a couple of other things about choosing that we should see. First, generally, something is chosen for a specific purpose. And we might ask, what purpose was this? And we'll see that answer later in this passage. And then also, we can be chosen as an individual or as a group. If we look here, as God's chosen ones, we see that we were chosen as a group. So then we get to ask the question, how are we to relate to the other chosen ones? What attitudes and actions should we have toward each other? And what equipment does God give us to live well with each other on this road that we're walking? Keep these questions in mind because we will get to answer them throughout the text. The passage goes on to say that we're not only chosen, we're holy and beloved. Choosing can be done in multiple ways. You can be chosen for death, like choosing a Christmas tree to put in your living room, 
By choosing this particular tree, you are choosing it for death. You're cutting it off from its roots, putting it in your living room with funny things hanging on it until it's dried out, and then eventually to be burned in our backyard. But God didn't choose us for death. He chose us for life. It's more than that. We were dead to begin with. We didn't have any roots at all. He gave us roots. He gave us life. And not some sad life like that of a Charlie Brown Christmas tree, which will continue to live, but only because no one wants to take the effort to cut it down. No, the life that God gave us is one of virtue, or is one of vibrant fellowship with him and the other chosen ones. So what does holy mean here? It means set apart, being special in a ceremonial sense, chosen for honorable instead of some common-placed purpose. And beloved, it goes even further, and it brings warmth. Not only does God set us apart, but he also does so as a loving father sets apart a child that he intends to shower his love on and equip to live life well with him. So to begin with, we had to answer two questions. First, why should I put on this clothing? And how can I put on this clothing? And we see that the reason for both is that we are chosen too. God lovingly chose us for this purpose, and apart from his choosing, we would have no hope, ability, or dream of putting on the new self. And it's with these answers in mind that we get to look at the new self and answer the question, what are we to put on? And that's what we see next. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. First, compassionate hearts. This is pity, favor, grace, mercy, or a deep feeling about one's difficulty or misfortune. Compassion is the opposite of apathy. And we're told to put this on. What does that mean? It means that we have some control over the type of heart that we have toward other people. Notice that this debunks that old argument of, that's just the way I am. And it replaces it with our duty and our ability to have a changed heart toward others. Notice that having a compassionate heart is outwardly focused. Compassion isn't something that we really have to have on ourselves, right? It's something that we have for other people. So to begin with, we can start to answer the question of, how are we to relate to the other chosen ones? And that is, to begin with, with pity, favor, grace, mercy, and a deep feeling for their needs and troubles. We are called to care for one another. Kindness is the next verse, or the next uh, idea, and that is goodness, excellence, uprightness. And it's derived from a word meaning useful or profitable. So we see that we are called to put on profitable goodness, and again, this brings the focus not on us, but instead others, because kindness isn't generally something we have to remind ourselves to do for ourselves. And this kindness we are supposed to put on is supposed to be useful while it's focused on others. And next we see the, the article of clothing being humility, which means lowliness or a mind of modesty. That is, having a humble view of one's self 
in light of God's attributes. Or another way of saying it is having a correct view of oneself informed by God's view of us. Humility is the opposite of pride. And we're told to put on humility, which leaves no room for self-boasting, seeing that all we have and are is derived from God and his choosing us to put on these new garments. We're just put on humility, constantly letting our standing before God inform our hearts and our minds. And next we see meekness. And the translation gives gentleness. The definition in gives mildness or gentleness. But the sense is not of weakness, but rather of gentle strength, possessing and expressing power but with reserve and gentleness. And as God's chosen ones, we have power here. And we are called to wield that power with gentleness. Notice again that this points outside of ourselves and instead to those around us. That's a constant theme in this. Next we see patience, which can be described as forbearance or long-suffering, also defined as long-tempered getting at the meaning of stalling anger. So we are to put on hearts and attitudes that are slow to anger. And finally, we see bearing with one another. And here is even further confirmation that God chooses us in the context of a group to put on this new self and live out what it means to have that clothing on. Bearing with another means enduring or having patience with each other. And verse 13 goes on to talk about forgiveness. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And this relates back to <clears throat> the bearing with one another. Here we see that even if we have a specific complaint or a fault, against another chosen one, we are to forgive or exercise grace, freely show favor to that chosen one. And you can see this strengthens the bearing with one another and shows that even with those complaints and faults that we could maybe point at other people, we are to forgive. One example of this, a practical one, is forgiving someone for an ill-placed or thoughtless comment, knowing that we all stick our foot in our mouth sometimes. But again, it goes further than that. This forgiveness is the type of forgiveness that does not stop in the face of life-changing or senseless atrocities against one's own family. Elizabeth Elliot had this type of forgiveness when she went to Ecuador to live among the Hoyarani people, the very people that had killed Jim Elliot, her husband. Why? In order to bring them the good news. And she did bring them the good news, such that we can count as our brothers and sisters some of the Hoyarani people. But why should we forgive each other in this manner? Isn't it right to hold someone accountable for the wrongs that they've committed against us? Why should they get away with it, whatever it is? Wouldn't that be unjust? Let's look at the next part. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Here we are given the motive for bearing with and forgiving one another, which is in order to follow the Lord's conduct towards us. 
since we have been forgiven everything by our Lord, and the Lord has forgiven all the other chosen ones as well, it would make no sense for us to then not forgive each other. The one who has power over both of us has chosen to set aside our blame. And so we have no standing and need not have consideration for those who do. But isn't that impossible? How can we follow Christ's command to Peter when he is asks how, oft, how much he should forgive his brother that sins against him? To which Jesus in Matthew 18, 21 says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. This is impossible, except through the motive of love. And that is what we see next. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We can ask, what does the above all these mean here? And it indicates that love is an umbrella trait that covers all of the other articles of clothing that the Lord has given us to put on. It keeps them dry and useful and intact, even in the face of stormy weather. But what type of love is this that we are to have as an umbrella trait? And the word for love here is agapen, from the word agape, the definition of which is benevolence, goodwill, or esteem. And it's typically used in scriptures for God's love for us. This love is one that is not centered on the attributes of the loved, but instead the lover. That is, the love that we are to put on is not contingent on the performance of those that we are called to love, but instead it's born out of the new self-attributes that we are given to put on. And as we read, we are called to put on love. So what does this imply? It implies that it is doable to put on love. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't command us to do so. And that we either had to put something off or we were naked to begin with. And we find that we did put something off earlier in the verses of chapter 3. Anger, wrath, malice. And these were called to replace as one replaces their filthy rags when delivered from a concentration camp. And we get to put on the rich and divine clothing offered by God in their place. So we begin to see a path for us being able to fulfill our calling to forgive each other. And this path is rooted in and supported by a love that looks not on the qualifications of each other as a basis of its expression, but instead it looks to the grace and love that has first been shown to us as its motivation. And what is the result of putting on this love? We read that it is which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This type of love for others and receiving the same from them results in unity. It binds our hearts to one another and helps smooth out the wrinkles and weather the storms that come from traveling this path together. It results in perfect harmony among the chosen ones. As an engineer, I know that failure generally happens at the joints in a part or a machine. And of course, that makes those joints exceedingly important. 
And a perfect bond is one that seamlessly blends two parts into one, such that there are no discontinuities. This is the bond that you need on your handlebars between the, on your bicycle between the handlebars and the forks. A seamless weld that makes those two parts one. So love binds us, the people of God, together perfectly, such that to disrupt our unity would be like tearing a single piece of intricately intertwined material into two, exposing raw edges and preventing it from doing its purpose. Just think of flying down Spromberg Canyon on your bicycle and all that, the force that's on that weld between the handlebars and the fork. And then imagine that weld failing and your bike going from an effectual tool of awesomeness to an incredible tool of death. That is the type of bond that love is to form in us. Let's go on to verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Here we see that Christ possesses a peace about him. And what kind of peace is this? If you look at Christ's life, it cannot have been peace with the world since he was often at odds with the world. There's many examples like uh, the Pharisees trying to accuse him by asking him if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, which he eventually does, likening it to uh, saving a sheep out of a pit. And then the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Or another example is in John 2, 12 through 25, where Jesus cleanses the, the temple by turning over tables and throwing people out, including the money changers. A dramatic and contentious scene, I'm sure. And furthermore, you cannot say someone lived a peaceful life if they were eventually violently and publicly slain by being hung on a cross. So if the peace of Christ here is not with the world, then who is it with? It must instead mean peace with God. His reconciliation of us to God by way of our sins being forgiven. That is the good news, the gospel. And we truly do have this peace. Earlier in Colossians, in chapters 2, 13 through 14, we read that God has forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us this debt being our sin. And how? By nailing it to the cross. This is the peace that we are to let rule in our hearts. That is, our hearts are to be directed by this peace as a king directs his subjects. And where our hearts go, there our thoughts and our minds and our actions are sure to follow. So what does having this peace with God mean for our lives? Remember for a minute who we are talking about. The one we have peace with is not some temporal power whose influence over us will eventually wane. No, this is the God whose glory the heavens declare. The one who not only created us, but everything we could possibly think of. He created the ability to think. And by his power and his will, we are allowed into his great redemptive work. No other power compares. He is it. Apart from his grace, we are less than nothing. 
and his power is so awesome that it is inconceivable. No worldly or spiritual power compares in the least, not even death. And this is the one whom we have peace with. And having this peace means that we need not fear death, seeing that our Lord has conquered death and that dying simply signals our shedding this mortal coil and going to be with him. And we are also free because of this here on earth from the darkness brought by the guilt of our sin. And because of that, we can shift our focus on ensuring our own safety, which we are doomed to secure apart from God's grace, and instead focusing on informing others of the safety that our Lord offers. Putting on this type of peace is the first step in learning to live well in his kingdom. It is the foundational lesson on which all others build. Looking at verse 15, we read, To which indeed you were called in one body. And here we see again that we are called as part of a group, but we're also told what type of group as a body. And this shows the manner in which we are to view those we are called with. As other members of the same physical body, intricately and seamlessly bound together by flesh and blood. It is a tragedy when someone loses a limb. So let your mind dwell on that for a moment. Our unity in the peace of Christ with each other is like the unity of your arm to your shoulder and severing that unity in the church is like severing your arm from your shoulder. So this calling to let Christ's peace rule us has built into it our unity in the body of Christ. The Lord is gracious not only to give us peace with him, but also a people to share that peace with to have unity with, to live our lives with, to share our burdens with, and a people who we can rejoice together with in the knowledge of his forgiveness. Doesn't that make you want to jump in to the life, to this life and this reality with the body? It should. We should pounce on the opportunity to rejoice in the peace that we have with Christ in the context of a body. And what flavor are we to put on this peace? With? With thankfulness. And be thankful. And this partially answers one of our questions that we started with, which was, how can I grow in the new self and encourage others in it too? And we see by being thankful. Thankful to whom and for what? To Christ and for his peace. Now this seems self-explanatory. What other response could we possibly have for this undeserved calling, for being lifted out of the muck of our old selves and being put into God's great redemptive work. And we'll see that thankfulness is, comes up three times in these three verses. So at the end, after we've seen them all, I'll go through thankfulness specifically. Reading verse 16, we read, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
word here at the beginning is the Greek logos, an often used word in the Bible with over 300 occurrences. And its meaning is a word as embodying an idea. So we get to ask, what idea? Of Christ. Of Christ shows that the idea is our redeemed standing before God. That is the gospel. It's also a synonym for the peace of Christ. What this what does this mean to have the word dwell in us? First, we see that we must allow, that is, let the word dwell in us, implying that we have some power to prevent it from doing so. And in what manner are we to let the gospel in? As one who dwells. Dwelling here refers to inhabiting one's personal residence. This is an intimate and permanent settling in, not as we would sleep in a hotel, but as we would settle into a home, putting down deep, permanent, long-term roots. And notice that we don't do this dwelling. This dwelling is done in us, meaning that Christ's word comes to set up residence within us, our very bodies and minds. And it's done so richly, which means abundantly or much in quantity, also means full. So we see that Christ's word, the good news, sets up residence within our very selves in such a way that we are full, like a home vibrant and bursting, full of life. And a home is nothing without the people that inhabit it. Without them, it will fall apart, and nothing worthwhile will happen in it. And we are the same without the word of God dwelling in us. If we have it not, then we will fall apart and nothing worthwhile will happen in us. Through this rich dwelling of the word of Christ in us, we have the ability to contribute to one another's lives and teach each other to live well as God's redeemed, as we see next. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We can ask the question of this text. What is the result of the word dwelling in us? And we see it is that it causes us to teach and admonish one another. Teaching refers to instruct or impart knowledge. And admonishing literally means to warn, counsel, and exhort. Another definition is to caution or reprove gently. And who does and who receives this teaching and admonishing? We do, one another. This again points back to our being called as a group or as a body, showing that all of this putting on of the new self is not done in isolation, but for and with each other. The redeemed life is not that of individuals, but that of a group. And this implies that we must actively be looking for where we can teach and admonish each other in our lives. We also need to be able to let others as in to our lives as teachers and admonishers. So our lives must be open enough to each other that we can see in others and others in us where we need teaching and admonishing. This implies that we cannot put on the happy everything is fine face with one another. 
But immediately this raises some questions or objections, like, I don't want people meddling in my life, or isn't that a recipe for gossip? And that's why I'm glad Paul goes on to say, in all wisdom. Wisdom here means insight, skill, or intelligence. We are to bring to bear the full power of our intellect and experience as we seek to teach one another. Not willy-nilly meddling in others' lives, but carefully and meaningfully following Christ's instruction to love one another by teaching and admonishing each other. And remember that the word of Christ, the good news dwelling in us, is what prompts us to do this teaching and admonishing. And also that we began by putting on the peace of Christ first. This section appeals mainly to our intellect, that is, our thinking mind. The work of Christ dwelling in us must result in our intellect being engaged as we interact with this word and with others. But this is not the only part of us that Christ would have engaged. We see next that our emotional selves must be involved too. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So what are these? Psalms are songs of praise or a sacred ode. Hymns are a sacred song or a song of praise to God. And it seems to be less formal than a psalm. And then spiritual songs refers to songs that are divinely or spiritually focused, opposed to earthly, worldly, or carnal. Singing is an emotional endeavor. If you need proof of this, just think about any epic movie that you've seen, anything with a score from Hans Zimmer, like the Dark Knight trilogy or uh, Inception or any of those. And then try to imagine that without music. You'll see that the story becomes flat. It no longer touches us emotionally. That is what music does. So the word of Christ dwelling in us is not only to engage our intellect, but our emotions as well. Since we are called as a group, it is natural that these acts of worship would be done for and among each other. To encourage one another, not only intellectually, but emotionally and spiritually as well. But of course, this doesn't preclude individual worship. So we've seen that our intellectual, emotional, and spiritual selves are called to let the word of Christ dwell in them. This shows that we are to have a full self-response to the word dwelling in us. All of our mind, all of our heart, all of ourselves must be involved in responding to it. And again, we are to do this with thankfulness. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. What other response could we have to the gospel setting up residence in our hearts? This is the second of three instances we see thankfulness in these passages, and again, I will look closer at it at the end. But note that letting the word dwell in us is not obligatory, but a privilege that we can praise the Lord for. Verse 17 goes on to say, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
whatever you do in word or deed. We just saw that our intellectual, emotional, and spiritual lives should be directed and flavored by the word of or peace of Christ. And I would have thought that there was, would have been nothing else, but Paul goes on to drive the point home. Here, we are called to devote all of our outward actions and expressions, that is, whatever we do, to a specific purpose. Does that leave anything that we can reserve as ourselves? No. It is complete, whatever meaning everything you do. Words and deeds are called out specifically. Word here is logos again, or a word embodying an idea. And deed is work, task, employment, action, that which is wrought or made. So, the text is telling us to take every fruit of our time and devote it to something. To what? Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are to take all our words and deeds and devote and or express them in the name of the Lord Jesus. This would be something like on behalf of or in the spirit of the Lord Jesus. So we are, rep are to represent our Lord in deeds and words. And remember that the Lord has chosen us to be called from outside his great redemptive work and included us in it. More than that, we have been chosen as adopted children, as we can read about in Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And as children, we are to represent him to those living around us, to our community, like your children, or you if you are a child, represent your family to the wider community. But isn't that impossible? How could we devote all of our actions and all of our speech to something, let alone to the Lord? I don't think Paul would tell the Colossians, and by extension us, to do it if it were impossible. Is it easy? No. Will we fail? Yes, sometimes. But we know that we are called with those who are also putting on the new self. Hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness with love. And we can rest assured that they will bear this burden with us. Looking back at the questions that we asked at the beginning of this passage, we see, what is this put-on action, and how do we put on the new self? And it is forsaking the filthy rags of the old self and replacing them with the resplendent garments of the redeemed. And also, we know that we can do this because of God's choosing us for this. Our next question was, what does the new self look like? And that is compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. And we know that these all have a focus on others, toward others, instead of ourselves. And then finally, the question we asked, because Paul tells us to grow in love, how can we do so 
and encourage others in it too. And we find that it is because we have been forgiven and those that we are called to love have been forgiven. And the love that we are called to show and encourage others in is a love based not on our, whether not based on our qualifications, but instead on our standing before God. So then one last question remains, and that is what attitude should we have toward God while we do all of this putting on of the new self among our brothers and sisters? And the answer comes in the last part of our passage for today, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Lord has plucked us from the world and chosen to clothe us with the new self. He has removed all the barriers in our life, the old self with its sin and its shame. He has cut our ties to the world so that we are free to walk in him. He has called us to join him and the rest of the chosen ones in this redemptive work. And he has shown us how to live in this world well as we wait for him, equipping each other and encouraging by encouraging and admonishing and teaching one another. And what should our response be? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our response is to have thankfulness, to be thankful, to let the Lord into our lives with thankfulness, and to give thanks to the Lord in everything we do. In Colossians, Paul wants us to put our focus on Christ, to know and love Jesus, period. And the way in which he would have us do so is by putting on the new self, bound together and covered by love, with thankfulness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. And we thank you for the new self and all that it entails. Thank you for expressly telling us how to live as a body together so that we do not have to question that. And thank you, Lord, that as we are called as a body, we know that the others that we are called to as well have the same calling to seek unity, Lord, to love unashamedly because you have first loved us. Please, Lord, bless this week. Help our minds and our hearts to be encouraged in you. And please bless us as we sing one last song together. Amen. <laughs>